As the 20th century began, the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke moved to Paris. In Paris, he became a secretary to the great French sculptor Auguste Rodin. Rodin is perhaps most familiar to us through his sculptor called The Thinker, in which a man bent over, hand on his bald fist, elbow of that arm on his knee, ponders, it seems, the human condition. From Rodin, Rilke learned two things. One, he learned by watching the sculptor at work in his studio how hard an artist works. Poets obviously sit with a pen and paper. It's hard to sit in front of a paper all day long to write a sonnet, which is of 14 lines. It's certainly even harder to sit and write that sonnet over eight or 10 hour days, day after day after day. But a sculptor working on a sculpture does do that, whether he's working with clay that will eventually be cast into bronze, whether he's working with a chisel and marble. Sculpture takes a long time. The concentrated effort of making the sculpture goes on and on. So Rilke learned to work and perfect his poems. The other thing he learned, and perhaps more important, was how important the material world is to the sculptor. After all, sculpture is made out of things, out of bronze, out of wax, out of clay, out of uh, marble. And not only is it made out of things, but sculptures themselves represent things in the world. This was the time of representational art, so sculptures were of people kissing or men thinking or a group of townspeople uh, standing together. But a finished sculpture is itself a thing. And from this, what I would call thinginess, Rilke conceived the idea of what he called Dingedichte, the German phrase for thing poems. In 1908, he was to publish a book of poems, the new poems of 1907, 1908, that he'd been working on for half a decade. They were all poems about things. And he called them, in describing them, poems not about, and I'm quoting them here, not about feelings, but about things he had felt. In other words, the feeling would not be transmitted directly to the reader, but the thing would be recreated and recreated in such a way that the way Rilke had felt it would also be communicated. Let's look at his poem, The Panther, a justly famous poem written in this period. In the poem, Rilke is looking at a panther pacing in a circle in his cage, this big cat, this big black animal circling again and again softly on the pads of his feet around and around in the zoo in Paris. The zoo is called the Jardin des Plantes. And the poem I'm going to read is in an English translation by Stephen Mitchell, a wonderful translator who will be the translator for all the poems we'll be looking at today. Here is the panther, panther uh, poem in four line stanzas, three stanzas, that makes it a 12 line poem. His vision from the constantly passing bars has grown so weary that it cannot hold anything else. It seems to him that there are a thousand bars and behind the bars, no world. As he paces in cramped circles over and over, the movement of his powerful soft strides is like a ritual dance around a center in which a mighty will stands paralyzed. Only at times the curtain of the pupils lifts quietly. An image 
enters in, rushes down through the tense, arrested muscles, plunges into the heart, and is gone. In the first stanza, the bars are constantly passing. In fact, it is the panther who is passing the bars on this circuit. The bars are stationary. But what Rilke has done in this poem, and it's beyond unusual, it's extraordinary, what Rilke has done is observe the panther so closely that he becomes the panther. He sees the bars as the panther sees the bars. That is why his vision from the constantly passing bars has grown so weary that it cannot hold anything else. It seems to him there are a thousand bars. The world is a prison, and he is imprisoned. And behind the bars, no world. The panther looks only at the cement on which he is pacing perhaps not even the cement. He sees nothing outside the bars. He is caged. The whole first stanza is about entrapment. As he paces in cramped circles over and over, the second stanza begins, the movement of his powerful, soft strides is like a ritual dance around a center in which a mighty will stands paralyzed. Here we have the ritual dance of the panther. And anyone who has seen a large cat in a zoo knows that cats can pace and pace and pace. They go either clockwise or counterclockwise. They keep going slowly in the same, same direction. And this ritual dance is around a center in which a mighty will stands paralyzed. That is, in fact, the case. The panther, a, a beast of prey, a, a mighty animal, is paralyzed because of his imprisonment. His will can take him nowhere but in these small cramped circles. Here's the final stanza. Only at times the curtain of the pupils lifts quietly. Only seldom, Rilke tells us, does the panther seem to see what there is. You remember in the first stanza, he saw nothing behind the bars. Behind the bars, no world. An image enters in, rushes down through the tensed, arrested muscles, plunges into the heart, and is gone. This is, I think... Uh, prevailingly an image of entrapment and willlessness. That is, the tiger sees something, the panther sees something. Whatever the panther sees does impress itself on his synapses. The, the image rushes down to the brain and to the muscles, which would pounce if this were in the wild. But it rushes, plunges into the heart, and is gone. The image, there, there is no response to the image. The willlessness is complete in this stanza. I think when I read this poem that what the panther is seeing is Rilke watching the panther. And the panther, caged, trapped, sees Rilke but cannot respond. And as the panther sees Rilke and cannot respond, Rilke, in some sense, sees the panther, and he too, perhaps, and I would underline that perhaps, he too, perhaps, feels trapped, caught up in something which leads to willlessness, feels himself trapped in a world which rushes plunges into the heart and is gone. Why would Rilke feel like this? Let me make a suggestion. I think that Rilke at this point, even as he's inventing a new poetry, is feeling the predicament of modern men and women extremely strongly. 
He's uncertain about the quality of his life, of, of what it means to live in the 20th century, to be a um, resident of a modern city, to be cut off from the natural processes, perhaps, that marked uh, earlier men and women, or, although maybe I'm being overly romantic here. Uh, perhaps he just feels the burden of culture laying too heavily on him. For some reason, I think Rilke feels that he himself is trapped. And I think in many of the poems that we'll be looking at today, you will recognize that, that motif of entrapment. Here is one of my favorite poems of the 20th century. I, I think it is one of the most powerful poems that I know in the whole history of human writing. It's a sonnet called Archaic Torso of Apollo. It's another Dingedichte. Here the ding, the thing is not an animal, a live thing, but rather a piece of sculpture which Rilke encounters in the Louvre Museum in Paris. And it's, it's there still. It is, as the title tells us, an archaic torso, a very old torso of the god Apollo, god of light and god of music. And we discover from the poem that it's a torso because, as is common with many old sculptures, at the weaker points, the sculpture has been damaged. So at the neck, uh, it was severed, and, and so there is no head on the statue, and just below the the waist where the legs begin to separate, where the stone is not as solid because it, it breaks into two, into two legs, the legs are knocked off. So there's only the midriff, basically, from from shoulders uh, down to upper thighs, which remain. The poem begins, it's a sonnet, the poem begins with an admission that the head is not there. And because the head is not there, the sculpture has no eyes. Even if it had eyes, it would be an inanimate thing, a piece of stone. And yet you'll see the reversal as this poem moves towards its stunning conclusion. So the first line is, we cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit. So we can't know that head. And the eyes which are like ripening fruit because they too are round as apples are round or oranges are round. But there's also this powerful sense that of ripening that comes in, in the very opening of the poem, that that the eyes, the, the sight of the gods or of the Greeks who made this statue, the sight is ripe and fruitful. Despite the opening, we cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit. The next line comes with a caveat, a, an exception, a but. Here is the second sentence. And yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze now turned to low, gleams in all its power. That is, the body, though it has no face and no eyes, though it is solid and opaque, still seems like a lamp. It still seems to glow, and it still seems not just to glow, but just as a light moves outward from its source, so this stone seems to have a gaze, even though it has no eyes, a gaze which even though turned down to low, still gleams in all its power. Otherwise, the poem begins, otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. He's telling us that the gaze still gleams in all its power because the breast dazzles. The, the shape of those muscles of that flesh turned to stone and yet a reminder of flesh and the, and the placid, because they don't move and they're quiet, the placid hips and thighs uh, 
seems to smile at us, a smile far more ominous than would at first appear. A smile runs through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. His eyes, which have moved from the torso as a whole to the curved breast, now look at the genital area in the torso. And procreation seems to have flared there. Now, before I go further, I want to remind you of the kinds of words that have occurred in this poem. I, I find when I read poems and find them moving, that often I will take a pencil or a pen and begin to underline words, words that seem to have to do with the theme of the poem. It's not like this is an exercise for a class or for a, uh, an analysis. It's that I think poems often achieve their power by an accumulation of words which we notice quite easily. And here, I think, what we notice are words that have to do with light and secondarily with seeing. So let me run through the words we've had of that sort thus far. Eyes suffused with brilliance, like a lamp, gaze, gleams in all its power, dazzle, smile running through hips to that dark center where procreation flared. And as the poem goes on, we are going to get translucent cascades and glistening like fur, bursting like a star. All of these images of light ending up with an image of seeing in the last line. We've thus far gone through the octave, the first eight lines of the poem, and now we turn to the sestet, those last six lines. Remember, the poem's structure is, we cannot know the head and eyes, and yet the torso is suffused with brilliance. Otherwise, the breast could not dazzle us, nor could the smile run to that dark center where pre procreation flared. Now we have another otherwise. Otherwise, this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur. The stone is not defaced. It would seem... It, it, I take that back. The stone is defaced. There is no head. There are no feet. There are marks of age upon it but it doesn't seem defaced. Otherwise, this stone would seem defaced, but, but it doesn't, because all Rilke can see is the translucent cascade of the shoulders and the glistening of a wild beast's fur. He, even though stone, even though old, even though defaced, even though behind glass in a museum, this piece of stone seems to be a translucent waterfall and it glistens like a wild beast. It has an energy and a power through that beast image that connects up with the ripening fruit, those lost eyes of the first stanza. And here's the final tercet, the final three lines. Um, there are times when words fail to explain what poetry does, and I think this is one of those times. We're still in an otherwise. So looking back to the otherwise from before, otherwise, this stone would not from all the borders of itself burst like a star, for here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. The culmination of the poem, then, is in the sculpture he's looking at. From all the borders of itself, this inanimate piece of stone bursts. It's full of movement, like a star. It, opaque, is 
like the source of all light. And in that energy and in that luminosity, the seeing that is denied in the first stanza, remember the beginning, we cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, that seeing appears with remarkable power. For here there is no place that does not see you. Rilke is standing in front of this sculpture. And just as he may have seen himself in the panther, he certainly sees himself in the sculpture. The sculpture may be defaced. It may have no head it may come from a past time. It may exist in the evening in the dusty quiet of a museum. But this sculpture, this piece of stone, has more life than he does. It has more light than he does. It has in its thinginess the remnant of the hands of Greek sculptors, it has in its thinginess more vision than he has. All of this is connected, I think, not only to the luminosity of, of this sculpture, but to its sexuality and its potency. It is, after all, something that is connected with ripening fruit, with brilliance, with power, with dazzling with hips and thighs which lead to a dark center where procreation flared. Its shoulders are a translucent cascade and it glistens like a wild beast's fur. It bursts like a star. And compared to that energy, to that sexual energy, that artistic energy, Rilke feels small. Rilke feels washed up. Those are my words. What Rilke feels is much more direct and explicit and stunning. I think it's the most stunning ending to any poem I know. For here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. Extraordinary poem, which I will read over again one more time. Archaic Torso of Apollo. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit and Yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze now turned to low gleams in all its power. Otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur would not, from all the borders of itself, burst like a star. For here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. That Rilke feels a bit cut off from life, more than a bit, is evident from another poem, a poem which I think we can all relate to very directly because it it represents one of the great experiences of the 20th century, that of looking at photographs of, of people in our families and trying to figure out just who were these people that were captured in the photograph in the past, what was their life like. So this Dinga Dichta is about a photograph and about a, an object both the photograph and the person captured in the photograph who becomes an object and is no longer a flesh and blood person. The photograph is of Rilke's father and the poem is called Portrait of My Father as a Young Man. Rilke is looking at this po photograph uh, after his father has died. He went through things in the house and he came upon this older photograph of his father as a young man his father is wearing a military uniform. Uh, he's in the Imperial Army. And his pose is, uh, he has one hand upon the hilt of his sword, which of course is, is mounted to a sash or his belt. So his hand goes across his waist 
and is on the hilt of a sword, and the other hand is on top of that. Let me read the poem, another sonnet. In the eyes, dream. The brow as if it could feel something far off. Around the lips, a great freshness, seductive, though there is no smile. Under the rose of ornamental braid on the slim imperial officer's uniform, the saber's basket hilt. Both hands stay folded upon it, going nowhere, calm, and now almost invisible, as if they were the first to grasp the distance and dissolve. And all the rest, so curtained with itself, so cloudy that I cannot understand this figure as it fades into the background. Oh, quickly disappearing photograph in my more slowly disappearing hand. The first eight lines of the poem describe the photograph. And then there's no break between octave and sestet in this poem, but then as we get to the eighth line, the, the hands which are folded upon the saber, going nowhere, calm and now almost invisible, are, and we have this wonderful, it's more than a simile, are as if they were the first to grasp the distance and dissolve. The photograph is clear. It is described for us. His father's dreamy eyes, the fresh and seductive line of the lips, although there is no smile, the braid on his uniform, the saber, the hands. So the photograph is clear, and yet it is distant. Those hands as if they were the first to grasp the distance and dissolve the great fresh seductiveness of the, of the lips, after all, is not a smile. It is seductive, but it gives nothing out. The brow as if it could feel something far off. It has intimations of a future. Of course, what's in the future for this young man in the photograph is his death and his separation from not only life, but his son. So there's a great distance in this poem which the hands seem to feel. The time of the photograph, a time 25 or 30 years before. The distance of his father who is now dead and gone. The immense, almost impenetrable, in this poem, impenetrable, otherness of another person. Rilke says, as if they were the first to grasp the distance and dissolve, and all the rest so curtained with itself, so cloudy, that curtaining with itself is not only that his father's picture is distant, but that his father, too, was distant, curtained within himself as each of us retains within ourselves our own inner secrets. And all the rest so curtained with itself, so cloudy that I cannot understand this figure as it fades into the background. The figure becomes part of the background in the picture. The picture itself seems in the manner of older photographs to be fading, moving from, from uh, sepia to yellowish. And he himself doubles his father. He himself is curtained in himself, distant not just from his father, but from himself, Rilke, the poet cannot fully see Rilke, the person. All is subject to time which moves onward and which covers up everything. Oh, 
the poem ends, oh, quickly disappearing photograph in my more slowly disappearing hand. Clearly the father and his image are doubled in the sun with his hand. The father's hands are there on the saber, but disappeared the son's hand too will pass on in time. Time itself, the poem tells us, is the ultimate distance. Here's another of the new poems, Neue Gedichte. This is called Self-Portrait 1906. In this, the object is Rilke's own physiognomy. He's looking in a mirror as a painter would. He's painting a self-portrait with words. It's a, an actual visual self-portrait. This is a photograph in words. And what he's trying to get at, you remember, is not feelings, but poems that are about the feelings he had, about the things that he had felt, he said. So he's looking at his face and trying to recreate the feeling that this face has for us and for him, but also within it. This is another of those poems in which I underline words. I underline the words that have to do with qualities, because these are the qualities that they tend to be nouns and adjectives. These are the qualities um, that Rilke thinks he himself has. And I, as an experiment, before I read the self-portrait of 1906, I'm going to just give you those words, those words that point to the qualities that he's going to see in the self-portrait. Stamina, old, long, no, noble, heavy, mild, solemn, anguished, humble, feminine, one who serves, ordinary, large, straight, composed, not unwilling to speak out, naive, comfortable, shadowy, downward looking, never collected. The poem breaks after nine lines, and I'll read those nine lines. The stamina of an old, long, noble race in the eyebrows, heavy arches. In the mild blue eyes, the solemn anguish of a child, and here and there, humility, not a fool's, but feminine, the look of one who serves. The mouth, quite ordinary, large, and straight, composed, yet not unwilling to speak out when necessary. The forehead still naive, most comfortable in shadows, looking down. It's quite a remarkable physical and character portrait. This is a person with stamina, which comes from the old, long, noble race, which is reflected in the eyebrows' heavy arches. This is a person with a certain kind of mildness seen from the blue eyes, but who feels pain, a kind of deep pain that is not histrionic. It's a solemn anguish, he says, of a child. So this is the penetrating pain of a child which seems not to be assuageable. Children don't have experience that tells them that pain ends, even though they have sometimes the advantage of parents who ease their pain. And it, it tells us that he's childlike, and later he will say he's naive. And he says here and there he has humility. He is already a great poet, and yet he he knows that he is a striver who has not accomplished. He is one who must change your life. He has the look of one who serves the line.
tells us. Uh, and, and he has a kind of humility that is feminine. So that feminine one who serves are connected. He, he's, he's saying, I'm more like a woman than like a macho man. His mouth is quite ordinary, the mouth which speaks. He's not pumping himself up as a poet. It's large and straight. Maybe his voice, too, is capacious and straightforward, although I don't want to overemphasize that symbolism. His mouth is composed, which means he has a certain kind of self-control, but that may also speak. We look at the mouth as being oracular from whence poetry comes, that he works at his poems. But despite being childlike and humble and serving, he is yet not unwilling to speak out when necessary. That means he's not forward. He's not willing to speak out when necessary, but he's not unwilling, a double negative. He's not unwilling. He will, if it's necessary, speak out. His forehead is still naive. He's most comfortable, not in well-lighted places, but in shadows, looking down. Here we see a kind of looking and now he is going to not just look down, but look out and into the future. This, begin the last five lines, this as a whole just hazily foreseen. This is the summation of his character. This as a whole just hazily foreseen, never in any joy or suffering collected for a firm accomplishment. There are two lines to go. I'll, I'll, I'll hold off on them. He is it's a very, very, very stringent self-judgment. Never in any joy or suffering collected for a firm accomplishment. It doesn't matter whether I am happy or if I am in anguish. I can never get it together to make something of myself and my life, is what those lines mean. He's never collected. The mouth may be composed, but he cannot collect it all together to make something of himself. This is a harsh judgment, and yet he also sees something else in his face, and it it comes as an and as yet and yet phrase. Never in any joy or suffering collected for a firm accomplishment, and yet as though from far off with scattered things a serious true work were being planned. Another of those remarkable endings to poems that we have seen in, in several of these in all of these sonnets, the image disappearing into the heart in the panther, the you must change your life in the archaic torso, the quickly disappearing photograph in my more slowly disappearing hand in portrait of my father. Here, the whole portrait, all these different parts of himself, he's saying, I, I haven't done it. I can't collect it, and yet, quite hedged here, hazily foreseen, as the lines before say, and yet as though from far off with scattered things a serious true work were being planned. His life, in other words, is still before him. It is possible that things will come together, will be serious, will issue forth in some kind of accomplishment. Let me read that again, since I have not read the whole of it before. The stamina of an old, long, noble race in the eyebrows, heavy arches, in the mild blue eyes, the solemn anguish of a child, and here and there humility, not a fool's, but feminine, the look of one who serves, 
the mouth quite ordinary, large and straight, composed yet not unwilling to speak out when necessary, the forehead still naive, most comfortable in shadows, looking down. This, as a whole, just hazily foreseen, never in any joy or suffering collected for a firm accomplishment, and yet, as though from far off with scattered things, a serious, true work were being planned. Here's another stunning poem by Rilke. Uh, it's composed of four four-line stanzas and is called Going Blind. Here he's observing a woman who is on the cusp of losing her sight. She certainly doesn't see very well in this. The scene is a sophisticated house or apartment. Um, there's been a tea party or perhaps uh, cake and tea. People are sitting at a table and he, in the first stanza, observes this woman going blind at the table and her kind of strange, self-conscious and yet not no longer seeing itself smile. In the second stanza, he watches when tea is over and people stand up and move to the drawing room through a number of rooms. So this is a mansion, whether it's an apartment or a, or a house. There are many rooms here. And the other people are relating to one another. They're talking and laughing and moving easily to the next room. But this blind woman, because almost blind woman, because she can't see well, is moves slowly. She's left far behind. In the third stanza, he describes her as she walks, as she is moving to join the others wherever they are in the drawing room, perhaps, as I said. There's a wonderful simile. He says, she is like someone who will soon have to sing before a large assembly. I have to confess, I don't know what that person looks like, but the simile, the comparison is so suggestive to me. We all have had moments when we or others have to gather ourselves, prepare ourselves to move before people who will look at us, who will hear us perform. Uh, at the same time, the, the images of, of bringing something out of herself as a singer does in a concert. Uh, that is unknown in her ordinary life. So he he looks at her. He looks at her eyes, which were a very strange line, radiant with joy. Upon her eyes, which were radiant with joy, light played as on the surface of a pool. Nothing in the poem up to this point has prepared us for this blind woman being having eyes that were radiant for this woman hesitantly making her way, trying not to bump into furniture, being radiant with joy. And the light we notice in these lines played as on the surface of a pool. So she is here, we're seeing the, the eyes are not things which take in light as in seeing, but reflect light as if just being objects in a blind person. Why the radiant joy? We don't know. Although I think the last lines will make it clear. I think this is a foreshadowing. He summarizes what's come before. She followed slowly, taking a long time. It's a description of much of the poem, as though there were some obstacle in the way. And then I'll leave the last lines, and by now you know the last lines in these poems come to us uh, almost like the hammer blows shattering our normal scene. Uh, they come to us with an extraordinary, almost explosive power. This is called Going Blind. She sat just like the others at the table. But on second glance, she seemed to hold her cup a little differently as she picked it up. She smiled once, 
it was almost painful. And when they finished and it was time to stand and slowly as chance selected them, they left and moved through many rooms. They talked and laughed. I saw her. She was moving far behind the others, absorbed like someone who will soon have to sing before a large assembly. Upon her eyes, which were radiant with joy, light played as on the surface of a pool. She followed slowly, taking a long time, as though there were some obstacle in the way, and yet, as though once it was overcome, she would be beyond all walking and would fly. And yet, as though once it was overcome, she would be beyond all walking and would fly. This is a woman for whom blindness, not seeing the world, is somehow transcendent. Instead of being in this world where she bumps into things, she will be beyond this world as if she no longer had to walk but could fly. She is moving, perhaps, deeper into the self and away from the object world which is so hard to understand that fading picture of his father the panther who not only does not see Roka but shows that images disappear as in this poem the imminent world the seen world the world of things around us as it disappears the woman is left with what remains. What I would suggest is the transcendent world, the world above. As the world of sense impressions fades, she is left with the world of spirit or soul. Now, this is never told to us. We only have, and, and yet, this awkward woman somehow can make a transition to a new way of being and once it was overcome she would be on be beyond all walking and would fly let us move from that poem to the poem the swan this is another dinga dichta thing poem it is a description of a swan awkward on the ground as it walks uh, large on kind of its webbed feet. It talks about the awkward walking of the swan and how the swan kind of lets go of the ground, which is like dying, the poem says. So the, the, the swan lets go of the ground and kind of sinks into the water. It relinquishes the ground and sinks into the water. And when it does, it is gently received with reverence and joy in streams on other side, as one sees the wake behind the, the swan as, as the swan, the breast of the swan prows through the water. Uh, the water streams past the swan on either side and the swan is silent, aware, majestic, indifferent, gliding over the surface of things. So from an awkward movement to gliding is similar in the movement of actions to the last poem we looked at in which the almost blind woman is poised to go to make the transition from awkwardly moving from room to room to flying. I think we see in these two poems Rilke's interest in, I'd say, obsession with the moment of transition from the daily world into the world of art, from the world of struggle and anxiety in this poem and anguish in the last poem to a world of more perfect consonants. I must confess I don't like this poem because I think in its simile or metaphor between the swan on land and in water and on the one hand and on the other hand the comparison with living and moving into death, 
I don't really think it makes sense. I think it is something that Rilke runs the danger of, but often really doesn't fall into. It is a bit too aesthetic and too prettified. But I'm reading this poem because I think the lines four through six are absolutely extraordinary, and I just want to bring them to your attention and to bring them once again to mine. Here's the swan. This, this laboring through what is still undone, as though legs bound we hobbled along the way, is like the awkward walking of the swan. And dying to let go, no longer feel the solid ground we stand on every day, is like his anxious letting himself fall into the water, which receives him gently and which, as though with reverence and joy, draws back past him and streams on either side. While infinitely silent and aware in his full majesty and ever more indifferent, he condescends to glide. As I said, I, this is a poem I don't like. It, it really isn't about the swan, it's about living and dying. This laboring through what is still undone, the poem begins, as though we hobbled, is like a swan. And dying, he tells us, is like a swan plunging into water. It's about transition. It's a hopefulness, I suppose, on Rilke's part, that dying will be easy and that moving into the water will be distant but beautiful, silent, and full of gliding. Um, I don't know if Rilke has dying right. I think he's young and uncertain. And I may be older than when he wrote this poem, but I'm equally uncertain. Neither of us have gone through the dying. None of us have. Those who have gone through the dying do not come back to tell us whether they're like swans or not. But I do think that the second three lines, a separate stanza, are extraordinarily full of not just insight, but a capacity to feel the human condition. I'll read them in Mitchell's translation, and then I'll translate them for you in my mediocre German, and then we'll go back to Mitchell. And dying, to let go, no longer feel the solid ground we stand on every day, is like his anxious letting himself fall into the water. What Rilke says, my German is not great, is, und das sterben dieses nicht mehr fassen jenes Grunds, auf dem wir täglich stehen, seinem ängstlichen sich niederlassen in die Wasser. That means, if we translate it, and dying this, and there's a German kind of compound word, this no more grasping, or no more including, or in the kind of larger sense, no more comprehending of that ground on which we stand every day. I think Rilke has captured in these in this these two lines what what is most fearful about dying for all of us. And dying is the no more grasping, no more standing on the ground, no more comprehending the thinginess of the world. It is this no more grasping of that ground on which we stand every day. And so we have this is the third line of the stanza, just as the dying person or the swan, his anxious. We have an anxious letting himself or ourself relinquish or abandon this standing on the ground. What Rilke is summarizing in these three lines is that dying, I don't know if he's right about death, but about dying I think he's, as I've already said, extraordinarily perceptive. Dying is that sense that this ground, this earth, this thing we stand on, that we stand on every day, that, that dying means not touching the ground anymore, not 
feeling it anymore, not comprehending what physical existence is anymore, and that in turn we have enormous anxiety about letting ourselves relinquish or abandon the firm ground of standing, seeing, being in this world. And then the stanza ends with a colon and says, letting ourselves abandon this ground to slip into the water. Here is Mitchell's translation again. And dying to let go, no longer feel the solid ground we stand on every day, is like his anxious letting himself fall into the water, which receives him gently. Let us turn to one more poem of Rilke's. This poem is called The Last Evening. It is dedicated to a friend of his whose husband died in a war in the 1860s. It's set in a drawing room. Uh, the husband is playing the harpsichord for his wife. She's listening as the poem begins. The sounds of war are on the horizon, rumbling of night and the army's train. The music and their love for one another drowns out the signs of war, sounds of war. And uh, as we go through the poem, he looks at her and she is so full of thoughts of him that it's like looking in a mirror. His music, his playing and her seeing are conjoined. Then suddenly the image broke apart. The sestet begins of this sonnet. She hears somehow the drum beats outside of the military uh, they are also the beating of her heart. She feels the violent drum beats of her heart. She has an anticipation, a foreknowledge of what war means. As she moves to the window, his playing stops. The world outside intrudes, a fresh wind blows. And the final image of the poem is this strangely alien military hat at Chaco, which is a hat with a feather on the top. A uh, kind of German military hat with its totenkopf, its death head, or in the translation, its iron skull. Uh, in this poem, not only death, but the social world, for a very rare time in Rilke, the social world, the historical world, intrudes. And we once again have a poem about transitions, endings, movements to a new sphere. The Last Evening. And night and distant rumbling, now the army's carrier train was moving out to war. He looked up from the harpsichord, and as he went on playing, he looked across at her, almost as one might gaze into a mirror. So deeply was her every feature filled with his young features, which bore his pain and were more beautiful and seductive with each sound. Then... Suddenly, the image broke apart. She stood as though distracted near the window and felt the violent drum beats of her heart. His playing stopped. From outside, a fresh wind blew, and, strangely alien on the mirror table, stood the black shako with its ivory skull. What we find in Rilke is a power to look at the object world, that world of things, of dingedichte, the things seen. Power to look at the object world and in looking at it, to comprehend the limitations of seeing, of our seeing. That seeing fades like a photograph. That seeing pales behind the seeing that even a piece of stone like the archaic bust can see. Rilke ever feels the loss and the diminution of our modern life, and yet at the same time he always hopes for the transcendent. And so his poetry is, I think, an eloquent plea, unanswered until his very late poetry, to bridge the gap between loss and limitation on the one hand, and the gliding, the being beyond all walking and would fly, he so deeply 
longs for. He's a poet of the richness of our world, but of what more we can find and want to find and need to find in the world of spirit and the world of art.